Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. And today, well, most of us have heftier mortgages these days. In the UK, we owe about £1.4 trillion to pay off our homes. In 1999, it was less than half a billion. So it's trebled. In less than two decades, five times the rate of inflation. And we pay out about £19 billion a month on mortgage repayments. So what's happening to that money? Is it still working its magic to keep the economy going? Or does it slow things down? We'll look at that today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Well, I've always been told that uh, house prices help contribute to the growth of a country, that if uh, if house prices are going well, then the country is going well, which I've always thought is a bit strange because it's not a partic- particularly productive element of the country, is it really, and the economy? Because, you know, you buy a house to live in. There's only a certain number of people in the country, so you only need a house each at best. So if prices are going up more than inflation, then that's not because the economy is becoming more productive. It's because developers and homeowners know that they can get away with charging you more. Uh, So, Steve, I mean, why would we even think that house prices in any way contributed to the health of an economy? I, I, I think it was the other way around, isn't it? Well, listen. My my business I've been houses are basically a consumption item, not a not a uh, investment item. Uh, because one little simple reason: it's illegal to sell your children. Really? Damn it! <laughs> so you're not you know factories produce output which you can actually flog and make a profit out of. Um, if you flog, you know, pardon, I won't I won't take that joke too far. But if you do the same, you can't do the same with housing. Housing is a place you live in. Um, you're, you're not going to be selling any output from your house. So to value it as an asset in the same sense we value a factory, I think is misleading to begin with. But that's what we've got caught up with because, of course, to buy a house, you have to borrow money. Now, the, the trap yeah. when you borrow money is the borrowing money itself causes a feedback that actually drives up the house prices. And what you get out of that is if you've bought the house and you're leaving your position to buy the house, you in the back on the, the what I would regard these days as the good old days when you had to have a thirty percent deposit to buy a house, uh, then if the house price was a million and you paid put down a three hundred thousand dollar deposit and the price goes up by thirty percent, in a notional sense you've doubled your money because you put in three hundred thousand is now worth one point three million, you can sell it for a six hundred thousand profit once you pay off the debt. And that's what got us caught up in the whole trap of seeing house prices as a productive asset rather than as a place to live. The thing is, of course, it's only no. productive if the price rises. It's because you're not selling anything in the house itself. You're just selling the house in total. But the question is, why would that happen? Why would that house go from $1 million to $1.3 million? Why wouldn't it just be going up in line with inflation? In which case you'd be saying, you know, well, there's, there's, well, there's no benefit from doing this because it's just the same as putting that money in a, you know, in, in an interest-bearing account, for example, or, or something which is more, li- more, more linked to the, the rate of inflation. Well, there's two elements to it. One is the one that the Georgists always focus upon, and that is the idea that when you buy a house, uh, you're not just buying a property, you're buying its location. 
and its locations and the value of it depends upon the location, not just in terms of what you've done to improve the property, but also what society itself does to improve the property. So my favourite example in the UK is the Queen Elizabeth. Is it the Queen Elizabeth line or the QE2 yeah. um, subway yeah, line Elizabeth, going through? The Elizabeth line. Okay. Yeah. Each yeah. time, yeah. When, when, when each new tube station opens up, on the line that that's following, the houses in the local area will go up in value because suddenly you're close to a tube station when that wasn't the case beforehand. And and no. that becomes a, a transportation, a socially paid for uh, way in which your value of your property has risen. So if you... Uh, sure. And we've so, spoken about that before, and you say yeah. you get the benefits out of that. But yeah. I mean, that doesn't apply if you've got a house in uh, the, you know, the wilds of Scotland, for example, or, you know, in lots of places where there's not a lot of infrastructure being added. We're still seeing house prices uh, house prices increase, and um, you know, and that is you know, getting back to the original question, that's seen as being a good thing, but it's it, it, but it's not. I mean, it really doesn't influence the economy one way or the other, does it? Well, it it, it does in one sense if it actually encourages more construction development, which is again another circular argument. But the argument economists have always mm. made in favour of the good side of rising values of assets. They believe what is called a wealth effect. This is a major part of the argument in favour of QE when it was first taken on as well, quantitative easing. Uh, what the people spell not just being on the basis of their income, but also on the basis of their wealth, actual or perceived wealth, and an increase in house prices was supposed to lead to people feeling wealthier and therefore consuming yeah. more. Now, we're back on all sorts of dilemmas once more on the value of, of higher consumption. But empirically, uh, the... the um, Federal Reserve has done one study where they looked at whether it is or is not a wealth effect. There is no wealth effect from shares. They couldn't find any whatsoever. So a variation in share prices had no impact upon whether people consume more or less. There was a wealth effect with housing, uh, but not a a large one. That is bizarre. Why the the difference? I mean, they are both the same in effect, aren't they? They're they're something you bought that has got a a value and and, uh, you can can leverage that to, to spend it on other stuff. No, because, well, it's not as easy to... To uh, you, you can't get a high value out of shares unless you sell them. If you want to get a capital gain out of shares, you can't you can't uh, mm. get a loan for the capital gain of the shares. You can get a loan for the capital gain of your house. So there is the ide- right. whole idea of what they call that um, when you refinance your housing or you, or you use the, ha- the house as an ATM. There's a financial reason why that increase in the valuation can actually finance an increase in consumption. There's no such thing with shares because it's a very roundabout way to try to get a boost to, to demand. And why do they want to boost the demand? Because the economy is falling over. Why did the economy fall over? Because there's been a housing bubble beforehand that burst. So we're back to the stage where it's circular reasoning rather than sensible reasoning. It's getting us in trouble here. One thing my parents tried to pummel into me, and I'm sure it's the same for everybody else, was that you know you, you should buy a house as soon as you possibly can because if you rent, that's dead money. And I'm wondering if that's the case because if I if I rent, I I pay my landlord, and that landlord then gets money that that landlord can then spend buying other things. Um, so uh, he has that money to spend. That money keeps circulating. So that's not a drain on the economy quite so much, isn't it? Even if my rents keep getting higher and higher, I might have less money. I can afford to buy less. It just means my landlord can buy more. But it also means, and this this has been an argument for for some people who have been eschewing house ownership as a means to wealth. They say, well, if you actually put aside the money you'd otherwise be saving for a deposit and buy shares with it, you'll actually get a higher rate of return. And I know quite a few colleagues have taken that taken that route over time and done very well out of it. But the thing is, the, it's the easiest apparent route to wealth in the Western society, particularly one with which the deregulated finances we've had uh, for 20 or 30 years in the West, is to buy a house and watch its house price rise. And as house price rises... Mm 
fundamentally because of deregulated finance. So again, we're caught with the circularity. It works, and it works while the level of mortgage debt continues rising. And that's the, that's the danger that we face, that uh, all this last 40 years of expecting house prices to rise has been driven by a higher and higher level of household debt. And looking at the American data, which I think is the most, uh, the, the least, least contaminated by impact from the rest of the world because it is still the world's most self-contained economy. If you go back to 1980, the level of mortgage debt in America was 40% of GDP. If you fast forward to pretty much just before the 2000s, so at least two decades ago, it was 60% of GDP. It went from 60% to 100% over about a 10-year period. When it peaked, that was the end of rising house prices. It's then come down from 100% of GDP to about 75% of GDP. But that the, the, drive, the rising level of house of mortgage debt is the fundamental cause of the rise in house prices. It looks like you're wealthier, uh, but in fact you're not because the force of your wealth is more yeah. debt, and debt, of course, subtracts from your wealth. So until you get to that point where you go, oh, my God, I'm carrying so much debt, I'm going to have to stop spending, and everybody else draws the same conclusion, until you reach that point, uh, the point in the interim where you're quite happy to borrow to pay for a, for a heftier mortgage, is the... Are those increasing house prices that's driving that call for that heftier mortgage, is that helping the economy in any way? Is it distracting the economy? Is it slowing the economy down? Is it keeping the economy up or is it making no difference? It's distorting the economy entirely because we focus upon building an asset which should not produce any value. Again, right. said you, 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 you can, houses are only a productive asset if you can sell your children. And so you're saying it's legal. distorting it. By saying distorting it, then, you mean it, it's actually it, it's slowing the economy. We, yeah, people yeah. would be we, using we, their money for more productive things. Yeah, if we weren't worrying about it. And this, again, the German attitude to housing is very, very different. And, in fact, I had a, a, a friend who um, told me he's buying into a – I forgot, somewhere, I think somewhere around Bonn, buying a property around Bonn, and uh, he was willing to accept the, the seller's uh, asking price because he, he's coming from where he was coming, which is – a fairly wealthy part of, of, uh, of the UK, that didn't look like a bad price at all. And the sale was actually stopped by the local mayor. He said, no, he's wanting too much. We'll go and tell him to drop his price by something like about 25%. <laughs> and the wow. household was actually broke. They didn't want the guy to waste his money buying a property. And again, if you look at German renting rules, this is a, another part of German culture that I would very happily export to the rest of the world. The rights of tenants are so good that in a German as far as I understand, almost all German leasing arrangements, when you agree to lease a house, you also agree to provide the kitchen for the house. And I don't mean yeah, the yeah. box and fork. I mean the whole damn thing. That's a long-term rental. Yeah, yeah. that's a long-term yeah, yeah. rental. And what it means is people can people aren't people are able to move much more easily uh, in their location in terms of they're they're not locked in by a high mortgage to mean that they can't afford to leave unless they can sell their house again. It's a fairly ordinary thing to leave the house or in and go to another one if you need to. Uh, but at the same time, when you choose somewhere to stay, um, the, rent, the rents are relatively low. A lot of your money is left over for other activities, which is what we actually need, Things that you know, stuff that will actually produce you know, um, a higher standard of living, whether it means more growth or not. But more, in, more innovation, more investment can occur yeah. if we're spending less of our time flipping houses to each other, which are fundamentally unproductive assets. Right, but but the counter argument to that, which is often given, isn't it, by economists, is yeah, but you're still paying money to somebody else. It may be money that you're not spending on other things because you're paying a high mortgage, 
but you're paying it to, to somebody else. Uh, it goes to the previous owner or it goes to the de- the developer who, who, who then spends that money. Or perhaps it goes to a bank and that, uh, you know, that, that that makes money available for other investment, for example. Which it doesn't, because uh, mm. bank. Uh, you know, as I was the, saying, that I was saying, I'm just I'm just handing you this. This is a gold oh, nugget yeah. for Steve <laughs> Key. <laughs> this is the it, the, the level of, of, of business debt as a percentage of GDP pretty much peaked back in the 1980s. And yeah. my feeling is that what's going been going on is that the financial sector fundamentally makes makes a profit for itself by creating debt. Uh, they saturated the, the business sector with as much debt as they could push their way until the 1987 stock market crash hit. And as soon as that uh, market was out of the way, who, who else can we extend money to? And it became the household sector. And then this whole idea of rising house prices becoming uh, a one-way bet uh, became part of the mentality of the West in general. It still lives on in some primitive parts, though, like, for example, countries like I think Australia and, uh, and, and uh, Canada would qualify, though they're starting to find it's falling over on them but this obsession with rising house prices took over then and if you look over the very long term and this is work of both robert schiller and uh, I've, I've forgotten the real estate age, a real estate economist involved but a, a real estate economist looked at the world's longest price series for house prices which happened to involve a street which is about four or five streets where i currently am called the herengratch canal uh, in amsterdam where the price series goes back to i think 1620 or something of that nature actually even before the tulip craze over here. And over the extremely long term, there's been no trend in house prices. They go up, they go down over periods as long as 70 years up or see, it was 50 years down. But over the long term, we pay roughly the same proportion of our income towards housing uh, as, as any other good. And the whole idea that there's a necessity of rising house prices tends to coincide with a speculative bubble in lending by the, by the financial sector. Right. So you think what goes up will come down and perhaps there'll be the hurt felt in, in, in the meantime. So, um, so get, uh, gets back to the original question. So is, is, is a mortgage dead money? Does it slow growth? Um, in the short term, it, it obviously does if, if we have this housing bubble happening. Um, but even when it is happening, if, if I pay a million pounds, crazy sum of a million pounds, which is how much you have to pay to buy a decent house in England, it seems these days, certainly in the South. Um, and, um, and, and then I sell it for 1.4 million. Someone's going to buy it for 1.4 million. And, um, and I've got 1.4 million. You know, I've got, I've got a, a stack of, a stack of cash. So it's, it's, it's not as though it's a, um, so what I'm trying to say is it keeps on I keep on earning from it and so long as I keep on earning from it I do have cash to spend and yeah, surely it, that's it, help, it, that, that's helping me push money out into the economy isn't it and that is that is where the original growth came from because it's all been it's all debt finance growth and this is part of my work on trying to build a proper monetary model of capitalism is that if you look at old Milton Friedman's argument about what drives the economy, he said it's a turnover of money. So the amount of money you've got times the many times it turns over a year will be equal to the value of GDP, which you can break down into the price level times real GDP. And that's his allocation MV equals PT. When I look at the role of credit, the modification that comes out of that equation, it's a MV plus the change in debt equals P times price level times GDP. So the change in debt is actually driving up the recorded level of GDP, and that is why rising house prices appear to give you a form of prosperity because what's causing house prices to rise is more credit. 
with more credit being created, the economy has a high level of turnover and it looks great. Uh, but the, the reason why economists end up encouraging this is that their own theories tell them credit plays no role in setting asset prices. Now, that is monumentally, tragically wrong when you compare it to the data. And I'm just mm. doing a, a bit of work right now for a uh, uh, marking in a, a, a Canadian PhD thesis as it happens. Uh, but looking at, if I look at the level of margin debt, so margin debt, which is used to buy shares as a percentage of GDP, and compare that to the uh, the what's called the Robert Schiller's capital uh, cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, which tells you whether shares are overvalued or not, the correlation between the two is supposed to be zero, effectively close to zero, not significantly different from zero, according to mainstream economic theory, the thing called the Medigliani-Miller hypothesis. The correlation is actually zero point seven two, which is. <laughs> closer to one than it is to zero. When I look at the mm. causal mechanism, which is the change, the acceleration or the change in new um, uh, margin debt versus the change in the share price index, again, that should be not significantly different to zero according to mainstream theory. Correlation is 0.5. Uh, and ditto when you look at mortgage debt, the correlation between mortgage debt as a percentage of GDP and the house price index is 0.9. And the correlation between change in new mortgages and change in the house price level is 0.8. So what we have is a phenomenally strong argument that all this stuff is credit-driven, is debt-driven. So ultimately, what it feels like growth of the person who sells when the bubble is going on and therefore has somebody buying off them who took more money than they did, that is both a booming economy and it looks like that rising house price contributes to a booming economy. But it's contributing to the DDDT side of it rather than the MV times PT. And what you often get out, what you get out of this as well, is because people are so focused on saving money to pay off their mortgage, the rate at which they turn over existing money actually goes down. And that's been the, the negative contributor to the value of nominal GDP in America since 1980. The t- rate of turnover of money has almost halved. Now, so I, so that's really, that situation. Yeah. Hence, that situation you described in Germany, where you know the local authority is saying, "No, you're paying too much for this house," uh, is a uh, is better for the economy as a whole. Yeah, I think so. So, uh, but the, we're a long way away from the rest of the world following on. Although it's interesting, isn't it? Because you think Germany, Germany is a staunchly capitalist society. It's a very successful economy. It's 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 hell bent on manufacturing and exports. It's doing fairly well for itself for for a number of reasons. Um, and so you'd think they would be a country that lots of people would be looking at. But on this one, I suspect not. No, they're not looking at it. And that's the, to me, the one thing I do look at for Germany to say we should be copying this is it's it's, it's uh, rules on rental, which actually takes away the pressure people feel to have to get out of being a renter. I mean, you, you know, if you, if you live in Australia, which has probably got the world's worst rental terms, uh, you can be chucked out on a whim by the landlord after the first six-month lease is up, and you have to ask the landlord's permission to to put a blue tack on the wall. I mean, it's it, whereas in Germany, you can redecorate the place because by the time the next tenant comes along, you know, it might be 15 years and the landlord happily collects a relatively small amount of rent for a relatively low investment to buy the property in the first place. So it is a healthier economy when you don't have this obsession with house prices. By the way, in terms of velocity, I thought I'd look up the numbers. Uh, what's called M- money, money of zero velocity. It's a, probably the most specialised measure of money which is easily um, um, easily accessed money, MZM yeah. money. The velocity of MZM money in 1984 was 3.5. Its value currently is 1.3. So, 
Wow. So because effect, so much of it is tied up in housing. I believe so. I think the large part of what's happened is the whole debt finance speculative bubble we've been through, which should, which really had its first denouement in 1987. Uh, that has meant that people are trying to hang on to money longer to be able to pay their own debts down, which means the actual rate of turnover money has dropped dramatically. So we've gone uh, the peak level is the first quarter of 1981 when the velocity of MZN money stock was 3.549. Uh, it plunged again during the during the Great Recession. It is currently, let's see if I get the data. Here we go, one point three. Now, imagine the the, 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 the difference in out of the literally amount of, of of economic activity out of the turnover of existing money. If we if we were back at the level that applied in the nineteen eighties versus now, it'd be two point five times the size of the economy right now. Wow, it's huge. And we could achieve that if we put some sort of limits on house prices. Yeah, if we if we stop letting banks create as much debt as they want, which is what the whole deregulatory framework for the last thirty or forty years has been about, rather than liberating the in, the innovative side of capitalism, it's been enabling financial uh, financial institutions to decide how much debt to create. The amount of debt they like to create as much as they can bloody well get away with. It's not right. what the economy actually needs. But how do, how do you control in- that? Because if you, if you were to say to a bank, say, you know, you mentioned that 30% deposit figure, you know, the, mm-hmm. that, would, that was a long time ago because I only ever remember it being 10 or, 10 or 20%, I think, when it, in the, uh, in the late 80s, I think, if you, if you, I am a bit older it, than you, mate. Yeah. Yeah. You are older than me. <laughs> I remember if you, if it was 20%, then you got a good, um, you know, you got the best possible interest rate. If you only put 10% down, then the interest rate wasn't quite as good. Um, mm. So, um, so you know, people were trying to save for a twenty percent deposit. Now, of course, you know, ten percent is uh, is the most you're ever going to have to pay. But if you if you were to say, well, okay, let's make it thirty percent, um, you know, let's let's enforce then that then that means lots of people just wouldn't be able to afford to ever reach that. So, uh, so you'd get housing in the hands of a few. Is that necessarily going to hold the prices down? No, what you wouldn't. You, what you do is you would you'd have house prices being lower because the main factor driving a house prices is mortgage debt. This again, I'm done. I'm done. I've still got to finish a paper. It keeps on being put off. Paul Lombrons are going to hang, draw, and quarter me if I continue to lay our joint paper on this much longer. But the causal mechanism behind rising house prices is rising levels of new mortgage debt. So if you stop the the uh, the banks being able to create as much money as they've been allowed to for mortgages, you wouldn't have the higher house prices we have now either. And that thirty percent deposit would be 30% of, in the case you were using, 30% of 300,000, not 30% of a million. Right. Uh, so it'd be easier to actually save for that deposit and paying it off wouldn't be as much of a burden. So you'd be able to spend more of your money on, on the main street rather than you know, taking it all down to the bank. Yeah. All right. 30% deposit, lower house prices. We've got more money. We spend it more. It has a faster turnover. The economy increases many times more than, uh, the, uh, than it currently is. Uh, that's the model. That's the model, but also to actually get there, you've got to stop banks creating money uh, just just for on collateralized lending, where they actually their lending actually causes the value of the collateral. So that's what when I talk about my modern debt jubilee, two elements, additional elements of that are to say that banks should only be allowed to lend to some multiple of the income earning capacity of whatever they're enabling you to purchase. So. My, my, mm. my rule of thumb figure has been there that the maximum bank should be able to lend is something like 10 times the annual rent, rental income of a property. Now, going back to the property that I was renting in Waterloo until very recently, I was paying £18,000 a year to rent it. My rule would be that nobody could borrow, nobody at all, not me, 
not Bonnie, Prince Charles or anybody, could borrow more than $180,000 to buy or pounds to buy it. Um, its price, I think I saw a price level for it as $350,000. Um, so there's no way that its price would be $350,000 if the most you could borrow to buy it would be $180,000. More likely to price be about $200,000, $210,000 and a similar reduction would apply across house prices across the whole country. So you'd have lower house prices but also a lower level of leverage and in terms of people competing to buy a place, you wouldn't be competing to get more leverage. It wouldn't be possible. You could only compete by saving more money. So you would actually get that, you know, the, uh, just a lower level of house prices and therefore a lower level of, of, of income necessary to service it. And people having less fear about the amount of debt they've accumulated because they have less debt. So apart from a mayor in a town in Germany, uh, are there many government officials, many governments around the world that get this and, and would see? Because, I mean, these are very enforceable regulations, aren't they? To You know, we've, we've actually got you know a couple of key things that could be done there that could have a sweeping reform on the economy and uh, and can be applied sort of in, in a very precise way. Yeah, I don't think it'll happen for the simple reason that politicians are so wedded to the financial sector now that anything that threatens the financial sector and threatens house prices, they will themselves block. So uh, it only the only chance to do this is in the aftermath of a crisis. And the UK's crisis in house prices and how and, and the bubble level was back in 2009. America's is 2006 to 2008. Uh, because it was stopped then, it's not going to be stopped now uh, in the sense that they, they, in any sense, any possibility for reform was back then. Of course, it was completely blown. And uh, they're still locked. They're still going to want to get back to that same old, the same old mechanism. The trouble is it simply doesn't have the same elasticity anymore because people are not able to take on that additional debt. Jeremy Corbyn might uh, entertain the idea. Um, let's hope so. But I think uh, as soon as he did, he'd be crucified by every newspaper in the country uh, for what he's doing to the wealth of the abolition middle class. And we'd mm. be back on the same old sell job that's got us back into this level of uh, private debt in the first yeah. place. And uh, newspapers, of course, rely on real estate advertising as well. So they've uh, got a vested interest in keeping the prices high too, <laughs> of course. Uh, that's the other <laughs> thing. Yeah, there's, yeah. It's good to talk, Steve. We'll catch you again very soon. Thank you. Okay, mate. Yep. So isn't that interesting? Uh, not totally unproductive, of course. The money doesn't disappear in its entirety, but it certainly trickles around a lot slower the moment it gets tied up in housing debt. So we need to free some of that money and get the economy kicking along. That's it for the Debunking Economics podcast this time. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll catch you again with Professor Steve Keen very soon. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.